Hey guys, if you love crime novels with a twist, you'll love the Peter O'Keefe Detective Series by Dan Flanagan. He's a lawyer and a friend of mine, and he knows how to write a gripping story. His novels are full of noir, atmosphere, action, and surprises, as praised by Book Life Publishers Weekly. His hero, Peter O'Keefe, is a Vietnam vet turned private eye who faces off against Wall Street crooks, mafia thugs, and other villains. His book, The Big Tilt, won two awards for crime fiction in 2021 and 2022. Check out the link in the show notes to get your copy. Well, welcome all you wiretappers out there back here in the studio of Gangland Wire. And I have in my studio via Zoom, Adrian Martinez of Invest in Yourself podcast. So welcome, Adrian. Hey, thanks for having me on, Gary. I'm honored, man. You're the OG when it comes to this. <laughs> <laughs> Always feel good talking to Adrian. He calls me the OG of this uh, mob podcasting. <laughs> And you know, I am. I was the very first guy to start a long time ago, six, seven years. I think it's going to be seven years ago this uh, this April, or yeah, I think it was April, and it was in the spring. So, yeah, when well, I, I did started, a lot. I put out maybe a couple of months, maybe even go a whole month, not do one, then do two or three. <laughs> Boy, <laughs> slowly but surely, I put out one a week for a long time. Yeah, I did a lot of research through your channel, man. So I thank you for that. <laughs> well, you're welcome. I hope you were entertained. That's nice. I, I was. <laughs> that's oh, my, yeah, man. That's my goal in life. And with this podcast, the video and the audio is to entertain people and, and enlighten them as to some of the history of the mafia in the United States. So uh, yeah. people love it. <laughs> yeah. There's an audience for it, for sure, man. <laughs> yeah. Yes, there is. All right. So now, guys, Adrian is working on a documentary uh, and about the American mafia in the United States. Is that the title of it? Yeah, well, uh, I suppose it's called overall, there's 11 episodes altogether. So but the, the main title is, you know, the rise and fall of the American mafia. And, you know, each episode is about a different crime family and there's 11 of them. Okay, cool. And and I know I'm in one or two of them. And, yeah. uh, you know, if you're going to talk about the Kansas City Chicago, Las Vegas connection. Why you got to have me in it? Because I'm. Yeah, those are the ones you're that. in. <laughs> yeah, those are what I got you in, and the I, Jewish one. Yeah, I, I live that. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, it, you know, it's it goes you know all across the board, guys, and it's really comprehensive. Now, how will people see that? Are you going to put episodes up on your your YouTube channel? Yeah, what I plan on doing is I'm going to you know just release it on YouTube, and then uh, it'll run for about. Three months, I suppose, because there's 11 episodes, one a week. And then, uh, you know, each episode, like I said, is different. So, you know, I'll probably start with the five New York families and then branch off to the Chicago outfit, Traffic Ante family, uh, the Jewish mafia, Patriarcha, the Philadelphia crime family. And what I did, I went with this, I was able to find someone from each one of those crime families besides the Lucchese to be a part of the documentary. So that was pretty interesting, you know, so I was you know, pretty happy I was able to do that. You know, that, that's what kind of inspired me because I did all these interviews with all these mom guys and I was like, yeah. I've been watching all these documentaries. I was like, shit, let me try to, you know, go and make one myself. I'm so <laughs> interested with it, you know, so I was just like, well, let's see what we can make. And that's, yeah. you know, when I went. I've made a, I made actually four, five documentaries all together, uh, three wow. in the uh, uh, mom genre, uh, two of them that actually have gotten a little bit of play out on Amazon and, and it's a tough world. It's it's a tough thing to do. It's immensely time consuming. Uh, can be really expensive if you really if you try to up the uh, the production values and and it's and it's hard to make money off of it too. So 
<laughs> I remember when you uh you were the fir- one of the first guys I interviewed for the documentary because I got you know Gary on from the law enforcement perspective and stuff yeah. on things and uh, you know when he, he he told me when I first started you know he's like uh, this is going to be a lot of time it's going to be it's going to be a ride it's going to be a roller coaster and yeah, it? it sure in the hell was you know <laughs> what I mean right. you're right <laughs> I did not think it was going to take that long because I originally thought I was just going to do a 45 minute you know uh, episode about yeah. it and then i was like shit i could do a whole series because i got all these other guys shit <laughs> so i did it and it lasted like go. six seven months now <laughs> i'm finally on the promoting stages <laughs> well, you got her done and and now it's time to promote so let's uh, uh tell me about we're gonna play a clip a little bit and and a guy that we're all interested in the uh i don't think he was ever called the godfather uh maybe the, the the they wanted to be the boss of all bosses and i don't know if he really wanted to be that he, he kind of did but lucky luciano you know one of the more famous mob guys I think partly because he's got such a cool name, <laughs> but, but yes, lucky, he does. Uh, I'll tell you right now, Adrian, when I put a clip up of something about Lucky Luciano, it gets, you know, maybe triple what some other mob guy may get. He, he's not quite up there with Gotti. Gotti is the king. <laughs> yeah, But as you far got that as right. interest from mob aficionados, Lucky Luciano is way up there. So, uh, and, and I looked at your clip. We'll show it in a minute, folks. Tell me a little bit about this. You, he, it's, it's something about the big meeting. He had a big meeting at the Hotel Nationale in Cuba in about 1947 or 48, I believe. Tell us a little bit about that, Adrian. Well, you know, with the clips, you know, each boss I did or each member, he was definitely, like you said, a lot of people like him. So there was a lot to do doing research on that. So I did like a seven, eight minute clip, you know, just talking about him and having everyone else's perspective on him. But, you know, when I got to the, the meeting part, I think after the murder of Joe Masseria, Charles Lucky Luciano became the boss from 1931 to 1946. Back in Sicily, my great grandparents came from a town called La Carafridi, and there are two famous people that are from that town: the, the Sinatra family, Frank Sinatra's family, and another guy named Salvatore Lucania. And any mob people who are who know anything about the mob know that his name here in this country was Lucky Luciano. And my family knew the Lucanias. I could tell you they were abracciante. They were people that worked with their arms. They were hardworking peasants. Lucky Luciano, uh, his family were not bad people. I'm in touch with relatives of his when I go back to the town. Lucky Luciano's crime family controlled lucrative crime rackets in New York City, such as illegal gambling, extortion, bookmaking, loan sharking, and drug trafficking. Lucky Luciano became very influential in the labor union activities and controlled the Manhattan waterfront, garbage hauling, construction, garment district businesses, and trucking. Everything was going smooth for five years, and in June 1936, Luciano was convicted on 62 counts of compulsory prostitution, and he was sentenced to 30 to 50 years in state prison. Prison. Lucky Luciano's underboss, Vito Genovese, ran the day-to-day operations. That's where he uh, allowed uh, Vito Genovese to go ahead and take over his family because he was never going to be able to come back to the United States. Up until 1937, he was indicted for murder and he fled the country to Italy. So the crime family needed a new acting boss, and that boss would become Frank Costello. During World War II, after the Japanese bombed Pearl Harbor, The U.S. government went to Lucky Luciano for help. The United States government feared submarine attacks, so the U.S. government needed the cooperation of all waterfront workers to prevent this. 
The government needed the mob's help to keep the New York docks free of strikes, sabotages, and any other problems that came up. Lucky Luciano still had control over all the waterfronts even while still in prison, so he agreed to help the government. Help them so they help you. Lucky Luciano did it when the war was on. He helped them with the war, and when they questioned him about it, he said, well, we're patriots. It's okay to be a patriot to help yourself, but if I did it, he'd kill me. This put Lucky Luciano in position for him to bargain for his freedom. In return for all this, in 1946, instead of serving his sentence in prison, he was deported back to Italy. After Lucky Luciano's deportation, Frank Costello became the boss of the family. Why did the mafia get involved in Cuba, right? That's that's a question. Uh, a big issue was with um, Lu Lucky Luciano, right? A after the Second World War, he, he was obviously head of his family, Luciano crime family in New York City. But the agreement was he was convicted, he was going to be deported. So in 1945, he gets deported after the Second World War back to Sicily, right? So he's back to Italy, and um, he starts developing a lot of connections. And he develops a connection where he develops a very good heroin connection from North Africa. So this is important because the mafia was kind of more into gambling, extortion, and other stuff. But th this would push the mafia big time into heroin trafficking. Really big, lucrative money from them. So he wants to start, uh, he wants to have a major conference. But he can't have it like he did in Atlantic City 10 years earlier, right? They have the major Atlantic City conference because he got deported now. He, he can't now. So he has Frank Costello acting for him, head of the Luciano family, which changed, would literally change names. So he decides that Havana is the perfect place because during Prohibition, Havana was used by a lot of people to bring in alcohol to the United States. Rum runners, right? Alcohol runners, bootleggers, right? Back and forth. So he knew those routes existed. He wants, to have, he wants to have a major, major conference. It's called the Havana Conference in 46. So he goes out there to Cuba. He finally gets into Cuba. He has to be careful because he, remember, the United States doesn't want him anywhere near the, the United States, and they deport him. This will become a, a who's who, bigger than Atlantic City Conference, of, of people showing up. They do it at the Hotel uh, Nacional. So you have all the crime families come in to Havana in 46. This is December 46. They all come in there. You have the Traficante family. Uh, and, but he also wants not just to be Italians, he wants to create an international crime syndicate. He wants to bring in the Spanish, the Jews, he wants to bring in the Jewish families, he wants to bring them all together, working together. That was the formation of the original Cosa Nostra. It was an organization called the Syndicate. The Syndicate was a combination of Jews and Italians, but then ultimately what emerged was the Cosa Nostra. The Jews uh, didn't have the hierarchical hierarchy like the Italians, as I explained to you. Jews were in it for just one one generation. The sooner they could get out, they got out. They made their money, invested a legitimate enterprise and got out. Whereas the Italians raised their children in many instances to um, succeed them. So you have Meyer Lansky there, you have other Jewish gangsters there that show up. Uh, you have Carlo Marcello from New Orleans, his family, he's there. Uh, from the outfit, Sam Giacana represents the outfit, right? Uh, all the New York families come in. Um, even Frank Sinatra was documented to be there. So that uh, he showed up. So you see a lot of ties. Sinatra always with the mafia. It seems like he's always around those guys. Uh, so that's interesting. So three things come out of it. He says, I've got this, I've got this major, major, major um, source from, from North Africa to bring heroin in. There's going to be a lot of money in there. They were first hesitant, but then he exposed how much they can make of it. And he says, yeah, you're right. Now that prohibition's gone, this this is illegal. 
and this is a lot of money in it because the black market just feeds on it, right? With drugs, just like anything else. Alcohol, there's no money anymore. It's legalized. It's hard to make money. So this, this is where they go for it. He now can't be the head of the Luciano family because he's out, but he wants to be the boss of all bosses for the commission. There's a lot of back and forth about it. Frank Costello and others help him win the vote. He becomes the boss of all boss. So luckily, Channel then becomes a boss of all boss. And then, of course, he wants to create with the, these other mafia families and these other groups, ethnic groups, working together to be together. So he says uh, Tampa with the Traficante family, because they were there, junior and senior, were there. Uh, you guys could be handling the drugs from Havana. This comes, it's going to come from Sicily, Italy, to Havana, Havana to Tampa, also from Havana to New York City. The New York City families will handle that and from Havana to New Orleans, and then you'll have the uh, the Marcello family take care of that. So he has a pretty good network, what's going on there. And they thrive. They thrive not only with the drugs, but they build a casino mecca gambling out there in Havana. And it's mafia owned. I'd forgotten about the whole narcotics thing. Uh, that was that was one of the big reasons for that, because of the source of narcotics he had. And that's when they got into heroin, I know even Kansas City. They're, they were connected through Tampa, through Traficante. They would go, they would send somebody down to, to Tampa to pick up heroin to bring back to Kansas City for distribution. And so it was, uh, you know, that was, that, uh, that's mainly what they wanted to do. It sounds to me like is set up these different distribution points for, uh, heroin distribution in the United States. Yeah. I mean, that's what, you know, I mean, it's insane how, how these guys were able to get together like this, you know, I mean, now you, you, you can't do that. You can't get away with, you know, this, you know, with all the footage and surveillance, but you know, back then these guys could all meet up and it just seemed quote unquote normal, but you're right. I mean, they, they could do all these plans and set up everything the way they wanted and, you know, go about their business. But eventually, you know, they, they all fell. I mean, there was the demise of all of them. A lot of these guys, man, whether it was death or prison. You know, there's a story that at the end of this, that lucky called Vito Genovese in and, and beat the crap out of him. I mean, really beat him bad. Now, I guess both of them were kind of little guys. I don't know. It seemed kind of weird to me. Maybe, maybe lucky had some big guys to hold him, <laughs> beat him up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're probably right. <laughs> you know, the, the whole thing with lucky Luciano, like I said, there's so much to cover, you know, and you, you I wanted to do it in a short amount of time. So I just, put it all in there. I mean, there's so much more to learn about the guy, but yeah. he, he was really influential when it came to the mafia. <laughs> <laughs> all right, let's take a look at Greg Scarpa. The Colombo crime family was also known for having strong hitmen in their family. The Colombo crime family's top hitman was Greg Scarpa. He was nicknamed the Grim Reaper, and he was a capo and a hitman for the Colombo crime family. And on top of that, he was an informant for the FBI. Uh, Greg Scarpa had a lengthy relationship uh, with the FBI. And Greg Scarpa was also the guy who recruited people like Larry Mazza um, into the family. The way I got in was in college. I was a hardworking kid. I had two or three jobs. One of the jobs was working in a supermarket. And at that supermarket, I met this older woman. Again, at the time, I was 17, going on 18. She was in the 30 area, a little above. Wound up having a relationship, got very close. Uh, so close, she was married, had kids. Still, we kept it going. Eventually, she wants me to meet her husband. And she says he could do a lot of things for me. Uh, we're opening up this big company. 
we can make you the sales manager, you can represent the whole East Coast. This is incredible. So ultimately I meet him and it turns out he's a top guy in the Colombo family. He was a very, very, very violent guy. No question about it. He was playing um, the role of cooperator and he was playing the role of uh, wise guy as well. So he had his he had his hands in both of the cookie jars and that's what made him even more dangerous. He could get away with a lot of stuff because of that. So he put me in charge of a part of his numbers business. And the numbers business is the smallest, lowest level racket uh, that the mob is involved in. And that's where you start. And then it, it goes on and before you know it, it's a snowball heading downhill. And it just keeps getting bigger and bigger. You see a beating take place. Then you back up your buddy because he's my friend. I can't uh, you know, not help him. You get involved and then he asks you to do something. It's a slow process, but ultimately uh, he, you know, Greg is, is he, he's grooming me and he's educating me on that lifestyle. He probably was given carte blanche now by the family because he helped them. So they look the other way. Then he's a tremendous earner. So they don't want to kill this guy. He's bringing in, you know, 50, 60,000 a week. He was probably, if not in all of Cosa Nostra, up there at the top of the best killers ever. And I say that because he did the precarious hits. He didn't do the hit where you always read about it. They call your best friend in in the basement. There's nobody around except the two shooters. and It's an easy hit. You know, where you set a guy up in the front seat, the guy in the back seat has the gun. Those are all uh, the ones you see in movies and stuff. And a lot of them are that way. But Greg would do the one where he had to walk into a crowded restaurant, doesn't care that there's two cop cars in front of the place, doesn't care that there's innocent bystanders all over, pops the guy twice, walks out like he just finished lunch. When the family was asked to kill a girl, who did they go to? They went to Greg Scarpa to do it. So he did a lot of the dirty work, and I think they looked the other way. Greg Scarpin, I remember first hearing about him. He was a bad man. Bad, You're right. Bad man. I was, I, I'll tell you the truth, Adrian. I was shocked. I had no idea that, well, that the movie, which I saw when it first came out, Mississippi Burning, and you know they, they claimed that the FBI agent kidnapped the guy and threatened to cut his nuts out or something if he didn't tell who where the bodies were hidden <laughs> And turned out that was based on reality, and and Greg Scarpa did that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, you know, from Larry's perspective, I mean, he told me like, you know, all this stuff that went on, and you know, they would go and do you know hits and everything. Obviously, when they were going through like the Colombo War, and you know, they just were you know really brutal, you know, when it came to it. But you know, Greg was his mentor, so it's no surprise that you know Larry committed a murder for whatever it was, you know, but I don't know. I mean, it's just really interesting that, you know, Larry was so close to him and that, you know, he's able to, you know, talk to us and, you know, really? speak, know. speak the truth. I mean, <laughs> cause you know, Greg, Greg, uh, his son has actually just recently got out of prison too. Oh, really? Greg yeah, Jr. Yeah. I didn't realize that. Yeah. Of course, when it came out to Greg Scarpa had been an informant then, yeah. Uh, you know, the fact that, that Larry Mazza, you know, worked for him and that's, he's the one that brought him in. And I guess when, when he turns and whoever he testified against, I don't even know. I can't remember who he testified against now, but 
Yeah. He testified against it. Must have been one of those situations where he didn't have to stay in the witness protection program, which there's a lot. We're seeing that all over the place now. Yeah. They're not staying in witness protection and nobody's doing anything about it. It used to be, you know, I I remember the one guy down in uh, Willie, was it Willie Bioff? They hit mm -hmm. a guy, the outfit hit a guy like four or five years later living down in Phoenix. And he had been actually living under an assumed name, but he got, he started going back up. He loved to gamble. He started going back up to Las Vegas and people started seeing him and, and, you know, and he wasn't a threat anymore. They just, they wanted some retribution. And, and so they hit the guy and that was always the story, you know, don't, you know, don't rat out the mafia because no matter how long it takes and where you go, eventually they're going to get you. But that's yeah. not true anymore, is it? No, we've interviewed lots of guys from that life. But, you know, in Larry's case, you know, he told me that, you know, I did a uh, segment, you know, Frank DiMatteo uh-huh. and with Larry Massa. We did a segment where informant versus non-informant, you know, they're from two different spectrums. And we were able to pull a segment together and did pretty well. It's still doing well. And they both gave their perspective and you know frank understood why larry you know became an informant i mean imagine having your you know your boss your mentor you know what i mean you know flip yeah. you know telling you all this stuff to be a wise guy and then out of nowhere oh you find this out mm-hmm. you know what do you think is going to happen why do you think he became an informant there's a reason you know but it's not just like like you know like he said you know before he became before he could think about flipping you know he wouldn't even think about it because he knew greg would kill him yeah. But then when he found out Craig, you know, had been an informant for all this time, he's like, no, this, there's no, no, no reason to stay loyal anymore. I mean, I don't know. Larry's, Larry's pretty cool though. I, I enjoy him. Is he a good guy? Yeah. I've never talked to him. I ought to get him on the show one of these days. You know, I, a lot of these guys, they may never come out, but I'll tell you what, it's a pretty handy way to deal with some competition in the criminal world. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, and you know, you see like, of course, everybody knows like, you know, Sammy, Sammy, the bull, he's doing his shows, but I mean, yeah. you know, there was uh, so many other under, under bosses, a few other under bosses like that flipped, like, uh, you know, uh, what's his name? Phil Leonetti, you know, He's still in hiding. He he doesn't do any. I mean, if he goes on shows, they got to be bigger and stuff. Yeah. And you know that book with Scott Bernstein, but yeah, he Mm -hmm. you don't ever see him. He wants a lot of money to go on a show, and and nobody made much money to do this. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I mean, but think about it. The only boss that has ever done a show, like an actual boss of a crime family, I think was Ralph Natali. And did he? I didn't remember that. He yeah he did one with uh I can't remember his name Patrick something Patrick something but it was on a bigger platform and yeah, stuff but that, yeah that Vlad TV uh, Patrick something bad yeah I re- yeah I remember it now yeah the guys I mean they see that kind of stuff and it's kind of like what the hell you know so they, I mean it's probably harder to stay loyal to the life but I'm sure that there's still guys out there and yeah. I know that I know there is it's just crazy how the YouTube has you know started a whole genre of. It has. <laughs> I mean, it's Part of it depends on if they and their family are still in the neighborhood or within the culture, the subculture. Yeah. In Kansas City, it's kind of a smaller town, and nobody's going to get out there and and get public because they got their friends and their family and extended family. And then I know there's one guy that, that has done a few things with me 
but never about Kansas City. But there's a couple of guys that that have really dissed him at you know me uh, uh, like uh, gatherings of uh, uh, like a funeral or uh, somebody's big birthday party. And, and right. he went to talk to one of them. The guy just waved him off and said, no, no. And, and then he, he asked around. He found out it's because he, they knew that he had done some stuff with me. And so it, oh. you know, he's ostracized now and in, in a section of his, what had been his friends. Now he's not involved criminally with them anymore, but they mm-hmm. were his friends. You know, yeah. he didn't talk. He spent 12 years in penitentiary. He didn't say a word, but because he knows me and, and I put him out there a little bit. Why? They'll ostracize him and his family will be ostracized because of that and in a certain small segment. So that's you got that social pressure. A lot of people don't think about it. it's not just that they're going to kill you, but yet there's a, there's a social pressure. If you care anything about these people or your family cares anything about, I got a good buddy I play golf with his uh, son is married to the niece of a guy that got killed. Uh, and one of the last mob hits we had here in the city. And, and, you know, when they all get together, you know, there's this huge, big extended family. His, his cousin, uh, had to do a little time because she helped the mob do something and, and kept her mouth shut. And she ended up doing a little time. And, but yet he's, you know, squarest John guy in the world. So it's these, you know, it is not simple. That's <laughs> what I'm trying to yeah, say. It, it's no. interconnected and there's a lot of family and social pressure on you to not talk. And I'll tell you one that was a really good guy that I got a part of the segment that was a part of the, like, okay, so Joe Bonanno's grandson and Bill Bonanno's son. I, saw you I got, him. yeah, I did one with him. Uh, you know, he goes by Tor Bonanno, but you know, I was, I seen he did one interview before and I reached out to him on Facebook and you know, every, everyone's doing shows and shit with him now, but he, he's a really good guy. You know, he just gave the perspective on everything that he knew. And, you know, so, you know, it's good to have that in a documentary, you know, people that are part of the family, because obviously I can't talk to Joe Bonanno or, you know, it's just, he's gone, he's long gone and stuff, but, you know, there's still someone that can hold the, you know, family legacy or, you know, be able to kind of tell the story, you know what I mean? So yeah, I, it, it was a good one. I, I think it's important to show because that's to me, that's part of the, uh, the attraction of this life is these men have this secret code, this secret world, this other family, and then they have their regular family and they go back home and, and they, they may, you know, coach the little league. They, they probably donate money to the, send their kids to the Catholic school and probably donate yeah. money to that church and, <laughs> and, and do, things for the community and, right. and so that and they're and they're you know to one one guy said you know he wasn't a, a mob guy to me he was just my grandpa you know i didn't <laughs> see him as anything else but just my grandpa he was a fun guy he was a lot of fun yeah. so yeah, you know right. it's uh it's good to show you know both sides of that because that's part of the entire story and we need you know mm-hmm. i think we're obligated to try to show the entire story now it's it's tempting to just show the murder part, <laughs> yeah. you know, so because that titillates more. people. If you don't paint the whole picture, they're only going to see that certain part that you put out there. And if it's all negativity and bad, you're not doing any justice for the people. You know, I mean, even if they did a lot of bad shit, I mean, there's still some more that went in. You know, I, I posted an interview today that I did with R.J. Roger, and we had this conversation, you know, about. You know, pain, you know, put like me and you said, you know, putting the whole picture out there, you know, because you said they were a father, they were donating to the church and everything else. So that clip that I did, 
that you probably saw or that I sent you, you know, that was, you know, Myron Sugarman. He was talking about the Jewish mafia. Yeah. They got in, they got their money. They left, you know, after a generation. But you got members like, you know, Meyer Lansky, who stayed in and made a lot of money. It's interesting that, you know, Arnold Rothstein basically, uh, you know, mentored uh, Lucky Luciano, Meyer Lansky, and uh, Frank Costello, Bugsy Siegel, all these kids. And they all went and made, been, became huge, huge bosses in the mafia world. You know what I mean? And he was one of their mentors. He groomed these guys and they thrive. Yeah. All right. Let's let's look at this one with Joe Bonanno's grandson. After the death of Salvatore Maranzano, Joe Bonanno would step up to the front of the line. Joe Bonanno became the boss in 1931. He had a very long career as the boss. He was started a bakery, but he had a bakery truck. And of course, you know, they needed trucks when prohibition hit. You know, it all kind of came together and he was in the right place at the right time. He was a really educated guy. A lot of those people weren't educated. He was a natural leader, but became the leader as a pretty young guy. And through his 30s, 40s, 50s, and 60s, he was the <laughs> shit. Bonanno family is called the Bonanno family because of my grandfather, Joe Bonanno. Uh, he was one of the, when the commission, uh, after the Castellamarese wars, and you know, when the commission was coming together, my grandfather was the head of the family, and that's why it was the Bonanno family, and uh, became one of the five of the commission. And um, the name has stuck through, you know, through all these years. Taking a step back, Joe Bonanno was already a part of this crime family before he became the boss. When he joined the crime family, Niccolo Shiro was the boss. So you can say Joe Bonanno started from the bottom and worked his way up to the top. Over the next three decades, Joe Bonanno would prosper from great success as this crime family's boss. The Bonanno crime family was one of the smaller crime families in New York, but this made it easier for the members of the crime family to be close and trust each other. They had almost no internal dissension and little harassment from other gangs or the police. The Bonanno crime family made a lot of profit off their illegal businesses, such as loan sharking, bookmaking, numbers running, prostitution, and other illegal activities. The only time he went to jail was he went to Canada and they arrested him for a passport thing once, and then they put him in court because he wouldn't answer questions about the commission. He put him in contempt for court. They asked him a few times. He said no. Brought him in six months later, asked him again. He said no. And after the third time, the judge said, man, send this guy home. He's not going to talk. During the mid-1960s, the crime family started to slip, mainly due to Joe Bonanno's involvement with Joe Magliocco in trying to organize a hit on Carl Gambino and Tommy Lucchese. He got pushed out because he allegedly was going to try to take over the commission with his cousin Magadino. They told Joe Colombo the plan, and he went and told Carlo Gambino and Tommy Lucchese before it was too late. In October 1964, Joe Bonanno disappeared and was not heard from again for two years, claiming he was kidnapped. Magliocco managed to get away with his life, and they required him to pay a $50,000 fine. Magliocco was having health issues, so I think that's why they let it slide. But during the time Joe Bonanno was quote-unquote kidnapped, there was a war that had started. Okay, that's cool. Having a, a grandson has a really interesting uh, perspective, shall we say. You had your narrator do the, uh, the, the crime story, and then the grandson told the uh, kind of the family story now, how the family saw him. Very interesting. Right. Yeah, no, I mean, I was able to expand on his story, you know, because he was talking about Salvatore Maranzano, which was, I think, one of the bosses at if I'm correct, before the commission was formed. Right, after right. Maranzano, I think, let Luciano kill, you know, he'll kill Masseria for Maranzano, yeah. and then he ended up killing Maranzano, and that's when he formed up the five families. Yeah. 
And then after the Castellamorese War. War, yeah. Yeah. So then after that, Joe Bonanno took over. And I was really interested in that whole part, you know, because Salvador, all the whole, I talk about the, I can always stutter on it, Castellamorese, Castellamorese War. You know, I talk about that because it's not really out there as much as, you know, the families, the Bonanno family and everything. You know, they, they, they talk about the bosses after, but they don't cover like the, the first bosses that formed these families. You know, these, I guess, street gangs kind of they were, yeah. but they were still the, the, the first, first origins of the bosses and stuff. But yeah, I mean, the, the bootlegging and everything, that's how Joe Bonanno got his start, like we were just talking about, and then worked his way up to be the boss for 30 years. I mean, that's that's a long time. Not a lot of guys had that longevity, especially after him and his family. They did not have that long longevity there was so much going on with that and you know they got into drugs and some became informants joe joe messino was one of i remember i, I talk about him in the documentary too mm-hmm. like, with uh, the uh, bill bonato didn't he marry uh profaci's daughter he, yeah he, I, uh, I, I think he did think now so. is that gonna be is is this guy uh Bill Bonanno's son, or is he another grandson? He's Bill Bonanno's son. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, you're right, because I remember he told me about that, and we were going to do a whole other interview on just that. So, yeah, yeah. you're right. On He, he married into the Profacis. Yeah, that, that was really interesting. Uh, kind of yeah. Like, it's whole like, world kind of, you know, yeah. uh, uh, the uh, prince of one family marries the princess of the other family, and will always have peace and have yeah. you know have that power these two families joined together by marriage of their well, children well you know uh carl gambino's son tommy gambino married into the lucchese family yeah, too that's right yeah so that i mean you know they did it i guess for business and you know he liked the girl i'm sure her woman <laughs> but i mean well, it's interesting used to that life then <laughs> <laughs> every woman wants to marry into that life and so you've been raised in that life that's you know, that's what you're familiar with, and that's what you're going to be attracted to is somebody in that life, unless you're, right. you're kind of a rebel and you see, I don't want any part of that life. But, <laughs> but if you want to be part of that life, that's, you know, that, that was where, that's where you're going to be comfortable. Yeah. And I mean, really always said, you know, how come we always find our one true love either at work or at least within 50 miles of home, huh? <laughs> Yeah, then, so I find her, part- then I find the other one true love at work. Then I find the other one true love, you know, <laughs> about 25 miles from home. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, it's it's interesting. I mean, all of it is. So if, you know, everybody wants to check out the documentary and, you know, hear more about the, the New York Five families, the Patriarcha, the Philadelphia, Traficante, Jewish Mafia, you know, all. All them families, I go into detail with them in my documentary, and I'll send my link, my YouTube link over to Gary, and you can check it out in the description. But yeah, you can also check out my podcast too, because I got all kinds of uh, interesting interviews, mafia interviews, yeah, true crime interviews. You yeah, a lot of guys. Interesting. Yeah. Well, Adrian, I'm glad to do this show with you, and look forward to checking out your documentary, some of the different episodes when you get it put out. What What'd you say it was going to be? How many episodes? How many separate stories? Yeah, 11 different crime 11, families 11 that I touch on. Yeah, episodes. Wow, you're really going into it big time. I uh, know. 20 to 30 minutes each. Okay, cool. Yeah, that won't wear a person out. <laughs> yeah, I did. Well, you know, I'm glad you were able to come on and be one of the first people that I interviewed. 
reviewed and give the police perspective and, you know, talk about Chicago outfit. And <clears throat> also you did a little bit with the Kansas city, but I didn't do one on them, but yeah. you know, we talked about the Jewish mafia and stuff. So I appreciate you being one of the first guys to give me that opportunity and have me on your show. I appreciate it. It was my pleasure, Adrian. Thanks a lot for coming on the show. Absolutely. Hey, you guys, you know, I like to ride motorcycles. So watch out for motorcycles when you're out there. And don't forget, if you've got a problem with PTSD and you were a vet or you got a friend or relative has a problem with PTSD and they're a vet, go to the Veterans Administration website and get that hotline number. Thanks a lot, guys. Adrian, thanks a lot. Thank you, Gary. Thank you, Gary. Thank you, Gary. Thank you, Gary.